From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In the year of the bird, celebrating more than a century of the Christmas bird count. Before the 1900s, the common thing to do was to go out on a Christmas bird hunt and shoot as many birds as you could, and then you would gather together and count up the number of birds that you had killed to see who was the winner. And that (laughs) did not sit well with some of the birders. When the passenger pigeon was gone, Americans responded to save the rest. So suddenly we had the invention of bird conservation, the creation of the Audubon Society, and the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, which is under threat in the current Congress, and it's also under threat by the Department of Interior, which wants to defang that law and make it okay to kill birds without having to pay any consequences. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRI and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. If there is one group of creatures that nature has endowed with command of planet Earth, it has to be the birds. They can fly, swim, and walk, and they are especially adept at ignoring the borders based on politics. And our show this week is all about birds, as 2018 is the centennial year of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, which National Geographic and Audubon and others are celebrating as the Year of the Bird. We begin with some irony, though. The Migratory Bird Treaty Act and related rules have helped safeguard many birds over the past century, but the Trump administration has reinterpreted it in a way that would loosen its protections and shield companies that kill birds from prosecution. That new interpretation has prompted a protest letter from some 17 former wildlife officials from both Republican and Democratic administrations. Letter organizer is Paul Schmidt, who served the Carter through Obama administrations. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. I'm glad to be here, Steve, and Living on Earth. Now, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, what's the purpose of this act? Well, the original purpose was actually to establish a continental approach to managing and conserving migratory birds about a century ago. Actually, it began with a treaty with Canada back in 1916 when folks realized that migratory birds don't recognize political boundaries and that there needs to be cooperation throughout the life cycle of a migratory bird in order for there to be success, if you will, or good management of, of that population. So I understand that uh, you know, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act began as a way to deal with the hunting of birds for their feathers and such, but in modern times, it's been used in different ways. I understand related to the Exxon Valdez incident, for example, or the explosion of the Deepwater Horizon offshore drilling rig in 2010. How was that law used to protect birds in those instances? In those instances where there was uh, negligence or gross negligence and the spilling of oil that ended up killing thousands of birds, it was used in a punitive manner to fine the companies responsible for those actions. In this case, BP and contractors associated with that spill and, of course, the Exxon Valdez back in 1989 when that uh, disaster occurred in Alaska. And now how has Secretary Zinke chosen to interpret this law, and and what's your objection? I gather the oil companies don't much like this, among other folks. Well, Secretary Zinke and his Department of Interior have interpreted it in a way to really narrow the use of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Heretofore, for decades, hence the 17 signatories to that letter, back to the Nixon administration, 
are objecting to this narrow view where someone is only violating the law if they intentionally and purposefully killed or took that bird. It wouldn't, for instance, be able to be used as a, a tool in conservation as it has been for decades to prevent such things as oil spills or mass electrocutions on uh, electric wires and power lines, wind turbines, oil pits. And in the examples that we already talked about in terms of Exxon or BP, there certainly wasn't any intention on the part of those companies to take or kill those thousands of birds, but it happened. And it happened as a result of some negligence or improper behaviors in some fashion. So that use of the MBTA has been eliminated now with this new interpretation that is precedent-setting, frankly, and, and goes against all Republican and Democratic interpretations over the past 40-plus years. Talk to me about the oil pits. What exactly are the oil pits that this law used to protect birds from, and how difficult is it to make these oil pits safe for birds? Well, in the process of developing oil, and bringing it to the surface, there are waste pit areas around those wells that are used to store oil. And they become an attraction to birds that are flying overhead. They don't recognize that that's a toxic material. They will view it, frankly, as a watering hole and immediately fly down and become, with the chemical exposure, they end up dying. It was recognized that that was a fairly significant problem, particularly in some parts of the West, 20 years ago. And therefore, technologies were developed, techniques, whereby you put a netting over that oil in order to keep the birds from committing suicide, if you will, in, inside an oil pit. What legal challenges, if any, are being mounted to oppose the Trump administration's interpretation of this law? I don't know currently of any legal challenges right now. It's early in the process. It's only a couple of weeks old. Interesting enough, in the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, there is no civil suit provision. In other words, that author allows civilians to bring suit against the government for not enforcing the law, if you will. Unlike some others, like the Endangered Species Act, which does have a provision that allows for organizations or individuals to take issue uh, through the courts. I imagine that Canada or Mexico or other nations who are parties to the Migratory Bird Treaty might have standing to bring a complaint. Of course they do. And in fact, I understand that the Canadians are considering exchanging a diplomatic note with the United States expressing their concerns. Because it was just a few years ago when I was serving in the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that we exchanged diplomatic notes relative to the Migratory Bird Treaty with Canada, affirming both countries' interpretation. And it's ironic that now Canada would have to come back to us and uh, express concern or objection for a brand new interpretation that violates that diplomatic note that was exchanged between our State Department and the Foreign Affairs Office in Canada. So how important is this Migratory Bird Treaty Act? Well, for some of the takings that occur out there, there aren't any substantial protections if this is removed. Frankly, it was one of the first environmental laws, conservation laws on the books that gave us sort of the 
the road forward for conservation. And uh, it's kind of a shame that we would roll it back after 100 years of success to where it will be narrowly interpreted and potentially cause more migratory birds to end up on things like the endangered species list. And of course, Paul, in, in your role as the Fish and Wildlife Service Assistant Director for Migratory Birds, you were even-handed. But on a personal level, what's your favorite bird? <laughs> well, Steve, one of my favorite birds is the common loon. It is, is a mystical bird, particularly where I grew up uh, enjoying some summers. And that bird and the sound, it makes a lonely sound on a, uh, on a clear main lake is something very, very special. It holds a special place in my heart. Paul Schmidt is a former Fish and Wildlife Service Assistant Director for Migratory Birds. Paul, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. I've enjoyed speaking with you, Steve, and good luck to you. Let's take a trip now beyond the headlines with Peter Dykstra. Peter's an editor with dailyclimate.org and environmental health news. That's ehn.org. And he's on the line from Atlanta, Georgia. Hey, Peter, what's up? Hi, Steve. Let's talk about two animals with cute, cuddly reputations in pop culture, owls and pandas, that you probably wouldn't want to get too close to in real life. And unlike a TV ad or a Pixar movie, real life isn't always that adorable. You're telling me there's not a happy ending? For now, no. But let's start with the owls. Recent research shows marijuana can be deadly for some spotted owls. Northern spotted owl is once threatened by chainsaws are now threatened by a simple buzz? In a way, yeah. Even as recreational marijuana use becomes legal in states like California, much marijuana farming remains unregulated and in many ways an environmental mess. One of those ways is that rats and mice love hanging out at pot farms, so pot farmers often use rodenticides. Spotted owls and barred owls love mice and rats, and recent research shows they're becoming unintended victims of the pot farmers' poisons. But even without the poisons, the northern spotted owl is still under threat, right? That's correct, Steve. They're not out of the woods. Oh, I think we should just fly right past such an awful pun and move on to the pandas. Sure, and sorry about the bad pun. In late 2016, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature delivered some good news on giant pandas, upgrading them from endangered to the slightly less dire vulnerable. But new research says not so fast. Not only is dwindling, fragmented habitat still an issue, but China's rapid industrialization leaves its pandas open to toxic chemicals in the air and in food sources. And this will make the pandas' road to recovery even tougher. So pandas are suffering the same kind of pollution problems as uh, many Chinese people, huh? Perhaps polluted pandas will be the same kind of iconic symbol for China that the flaming Cuyahoga River once was for water pollution in this country. Well, I guess anything's possible. And for this week's history lesson, let's take a look back at an American environmental giant of the 20th century. William O. Douglas was pretty clearly the only tree hugger to sit on the United States Supreme Court. He died 38 years ago this week. While on the bench in 1972, he argued that nature should have the same legal rights as humans. Now, that's an idea that's gaining increasing traction nowadays, but, uh, you know, I don't think it was enshrined into law when Justice Douglas was on the high court. Nope, but get this. Also along the bench in 1967, Justice Douglas led a protest hike along one of the prettiest stretches of the Delaware River on the Jersey side to oppose the Tox Island Dam. And the marching jurist got the dam project stopped? Well, the judge's activism certainly didn't hurt, 
But the prospect of the Tox Island Dam inspired a major citizens movement, and today the area is a free-flowing river and part of the Delaware Water Gap National Recreation Area. Yeah, and I understand that nearly 4 million visitors go there every year since it's less than two hours from New York City. Peter Dykstra is an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. Thanks, Peter. We'll talk to you again real soon. Okay, Steve. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories at our website, loe.org. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. In the natural world that surrounds us, even in cities, birds can be found almost anywhere. From noisy crows squawking in a park to pigeons pecking around on the ground. And every Christmas for over a century, there's been a yearly bird count, an occasion for bird lovers and citizen scientists to head outside to take note of these creatures sharing our world. And in the last days of 2017, they included Living on Earth's own Jenny Doring, who joined the count in Oceanside, California. On a Saturday morning two days before Christmas, the freeways of North San Diego County hum with a constant flow of shoppers on a last-minute search for that perfect gift, or travelers on a long haul to visit family for the holiday. But at an overlook for a saltwater lagoon in Oceanside, among the rush of traffic, two people listen closely for sweeter sounds and peer through powerful binoculars. They're bird watchers, drawn to the Agua Hedionda Lagoon Ecological Reserve by the many birds that live here or visit on long migrations. Hi, I'm Gretchen Nell. I'm Andy Morrow with Buena Vista Audubon Society. Gretchen is petite and bespectacled. Andy is solidly built, and both are dressed in layers for the morning chill. So our objective this morning is to go through our territory, visit all the different types of habitat that we can find, and tally all the different bird species, as well as the individual number of uh, birds within each of those species. They're taking part in the Christmas bird count. And though all they do is count birds, Andy Morrow says the Christmas bird count sprang from rather violent origins. Before the 1900s, uh, the common thing to do was to go out on a Christmas bird hunt and shoot as many birds as you could and then you would gather together and count up the number of birds that you had killed and to see who was the winner. And that <laughs> did not sit well with some of the people that uh, were more interested in the birds themselves. So in 1900, a member of the fledgling Audubon Society organized the first Christmas bird count. Today, some of the most prolific counts are in Southern California, thanks to the famously mild winter weather and the diversity of ecosystems here. Gretchen Nell squints through her binoculars at the salt marsh below. What do you have, Northern Gretchen? Northern Harrier flying left to right. Excellent. Right there, and it's causing, oh, everything's lifting because the Northern Harrier is flying. Those are all willets. Wait, no. Those are all ducks. Excuse me, I saw the white. So the, the Northern Harrier uh, is called a marsh hawk also, and you can see it right now in front of us kind of 
the way it glides along uh, just above the surface of the marsh. And it is trying to scare up uh, either birds or more likely rodents uh, that it can uh, prey upon. Nearby, two people on paddleboards glide up a channel between marsh grasses. From our perspective, uh, keeping an eye on them as they go along that channel might be productive because they're going to scare up a few birds that otherwise would be sitting down there and maybe we'll see them in flight. <laughs> Just like the harrier did. Right. So we have a helpers that we hadn't anticipated. This refuge, like most in Southern California, is an expanse of undeveloped land and water surrounded by a sprawling city. And it's bisected by buzzing, high-voltage power lines. Uh, we, we can never totally escape civilization when we're birding, but yet you have these little uh, moments of time when, when you do uh, get out there in nature. It still exists right here in the middle of our community. In fact, the Christmas bird count seeks out birds in all environments, including highly urban ones. Well, this is a remarkably clean parking lot. In front of a grocery store, not far from the lagoon where Andy and Gretchen are making their count, three teenage birders document the pigeons, gulls, and crows that like to forage here. I'm Max Leiblitz, 19 years old. BJ Dooley, I'm 16. Ryan Andrews, and I am 18. On a normal day, no birder would ever come to like this parking lot because it's literally just a parking lot. Um, but sometimes you get brewers, blackbirds, or some other things that you won't often get in other places. Like brewers, blackbirds are like, I've had people joke that like the most reliable place for them is a McDonald's parking lot. So <laughs> there's some species that like trash basically, and so you have to go where there's trash. He can trace his passion for birding to a white elephant gift exchange the Christmas when he was seven years old. We brought a bird feeder. We were hoping not to get it, and we ended up getting it. So <laughs> we're like, okay, that works. Um, and then it's like just in our basement. And then finally we put it up, and this is actually when I lived in Missouri, and we were part of like a youth organization that the Missouri Conservation Department runs, and they asked us to count bird species that come to our feeder. So I started doing that, and then when like the time period we were supposed to do that ended, I just didn't stop. I just kept on counting birds and looking in my yard, and then it kind of just spiraled out from there. By like 2013, I was like, I just was birding constantly. So been hooked since. <laughs> Ryan's found lots of rare birds over the years, and though it's also rare to find a teenage birder in basketball shorts and a hoodie, he says if you know where to look, there are plenty of young birders. I think that technology has helped with that. In the past five to 10 years, there's been like a massive increase in the number of young birders. So most of us like meet online and different forums. We have a young birder chat with like, probably only like around 100 members-ish, but that's still like 100 members and we're from all over the country and a few people from like Australia and Singapore and stuff. They connect through the most popular birding app, eBird, where they can submit checklists. Social media plays a big role in sharing their successes with each other, too. Like, I mean, we're all teenagers, so Instagram, Snapchat, those types of things are big. <laughs> a lot of people are on Facebook, which I'm not, which makes me sad a lot of times because, like, all the good rare bird alerts for, like, the country are on Facebook. Ryan, BJ, and Max want to cover more territory, so we head to the beach just a mile away. The sand is soft, almost silky where it's dry, high on the beach, 
and warm with the midday sun. Small shorebirds called sanderlings chase the water as it pulls back out to sea, then run away as it slides back up the beach. Every bird counts in the Christmas bird count, even common species like gulls. Zooming in 60 times through his spotting scope, Ryan locates a big flock floating just beyond the surf. Okay, so these gulls are pretty much entirely California. Oh, really? 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, 16, 20, 22, 34, 61, 32, Okay, 63, 64. There's 64 California gulls. Pelicans soar overhead with their huge beaks and loose throat pouches. Beyond the waves, dolphins gamble in the Pacific. A nice surprise dividend after peering at the horizon all morning, looking for birds. It is hard work, though fun. Most teams are out in the field by 5.30 a.m. and stay till afternoon. But when the 100 or so birders from the Oceanside Bird Count all gather at the local nature center to compile their lists and quell their hunger with a hearty lunch of chili, the excitement is palpable. One of the leaders of the flock calls the room to order. I know we don't want to be here all afternoon. Andy Morrow steps up to the podium to officiate the count. All right. This is, what is this? Uh, this is the 118th uh, Audubon Christmas bird count. And the Oceanside count has been in business since 1955. And that particular count, I think we had 117 species. Eight birders went out and did it. And uh, just for the heck of it, I looked at that count, and there were 54 loggerhead shrikes seen on that count. <laughs> Those were the days when we had loggerhead shrikes. Andy starts going down the list, and the birders call out whether they'd seen that species today. Double-crested cormorant. Yes. Pelagic cormorant. Osprey. Yes. White-tailed kite. Yes. Uh, Northern harrier. Yes. Wilson snipe. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Where did you see it? You saw it right here. Yeah. Ours. It takes several minutes to run through the whole list. And at last, Andy counts them all up. All right. Our preliminary count total for the 2017 Oceanside Christmas bird count is 181 species. The final count, which included the results from a team that was still out on the ocean counting birds, recorded 193 species not far from the record of 200 set several years ago. Perhaps even more impressive was the sheer number of birds than 115 birders recorded, 35,000 that day. But several species were at record or near record lows this year. Forster's tern, Caspian tern, the greater yellow legs, and the loggerhead shrike. Habitat loss and climate change are largely to blame, says Andy Morrow. Certain birds are are retracting and, and uh, abandoning certain areas because they no longer have the resources anymore um, that they used to because the climate has changed for them. Yet that change means that other species appear to be thriving. The great horned owl, 
the merlin, Hutton's vireo, and the acorn woodpecker. And the birds that once were shot on Christmas now instead help tell a story of a changing world. The sharp eyes and keen ears of birdwatchers everywhere help translate their flights, calls, and songs into actionable data that will be instrumental for the scientists and decision makers who hold the future of the environment in their hands. For Living on Earth, I'm Jenny Doring in Oceanside, California. In the Christmas bird count, it's not just the local resident species that are tallied, but the birds of passage, too. So if you happen to live in the right latitude, you might get to add in the Arctic tern. They're rather ordinary black and white shorebirds with bright red beaks, but they are champions of migration. In fact, Arctic terns travel as much as 56,000 miles a year, which is the longest known migration on Earth. To give them some help, conservationists work hard to protect part of their breeding habitat on the east coast of England, just south of Scotland. Here to tell us more is Gwen Potter. She's the countryside manager for Northumberland Coast and Farne Islands at the National Trust, a conservation organization. They're the most graceful birds you could ever imagine. So they have this incredible white and gray color, and they just kind of float through the sky and twist and in the start of the breeding season, they like to play with each other in the sky and they'll fight each other off and they um, have these beautiful forked tails as well. So they're quite often called sea swallows and they're just the most wonderful bird to see. And they're very, very angry, our Arctic terns as well. They like to attack people when, they, when people approach their nest. So they've got a lot of character as well. Your organization has bought up some 200 acres of land to protect that breeding habitat for them and You have sort of set up around-the-clock babysitting service for them. Um, Why and what did that entail? We already have an area of land that we look after for these terns. And um, we now have a bigger area that we can protect, which is absolutely fantastic. So we've basically doubled the area that these terns could potentially be in and nesting in. So the idea will be to close off some of these areas in the summer months to allow those terns to come in and nest um, on the sand. And um, that way we'll be able to keep an eye on them round the clock. We'll be living in the genes nearby and we'll be checking up on them 24-7. Now, I understand in some of your protection of these birds, you actually end up relocating nests. How does that work? We do. Um, When there's a a very high tide, we move the nests onto fish boxes um, filled with sand and that just raises them above that water level. It's something that is quite risky because obviously you think, oh, if I'm interfering with a nest, it might create an issue. Um, But it's a tried and tested method. 80% of the time it's successful. And ultimately, if we didn't do that, they, they would simply be washed away. So what are the risks to the terns there as they are nesting? In the daytime, it's generally humans, uh, people. So 
If people walk through and they don't see the eggs and they don't really know where they're going, they can cause a lot of disturbance. If they get too close, quite often they'll get attacked by the birds. So they'll very quickly realise that they're not supposed to be there. <laughs> but in the meantime, it's quite scary for them. But in the meantime, what will happen is the, the birds will be off their nests all of the time. And then they're leaving their eggs behind. Their eggs will chill and, and they won't survive. In the night time, it tends to be predators that are coming in. So we'll have all kinds of different species that will come in and try and, and take eggs um, and they'll try and take the younger chicks. We do have one more risk, um, which is people actually stealing eggs. People stealing turn eggs, why? So it's something that people used to do in Victorian times. They just used to collect eggs and it was a bit like stamp collecting. And there are people who for very, very rare species, will spend huge amounts of money on acquiring some of these rarer eggs. So what are your results? How many turns were able to successfully breed there, and how does that compare to previous years? We had a slightly higher number of Arctic term pairs last year, um, but the number of fledglings that they produced, so the number of birds that successfully went on to become adults, uh, went from two to 479. So the previous year, in 2016, it was two, and then it's gone up by a very large number, which is fantastic news. Wow. So what do you attribute that to? In all honesty, it's weather. So we, we do as much as we can to protect these birds, but quite often the weather can cause huge issues because they live on the tideline. If there are increased numbers of sort of extreme tides, the eggs are washed out. Um, and we had slightly better weather in most recent years. Over time, what we have seen, though, is that we do have increasing numbers of sort of really severe weather events that will impact on these nesting birds. So we're, we're looking that in the long term, we will have more extreme tides, which can impact some of the time in localised areas as well. Now, of course, once those Arctic turns take off, that's when their real work begins. Tell me a bit about their migration pattern. Most wonderful thing, yeah, they, they've got a bit of a job. They basically go to Antarctica from here uh, in Northumberland. Um, and when they reach Antarctica, they'll spend quite a lot of time essentially flying the Southern Oceans to Australia, New Zealand, um, back in between around Antarctica, and then right back up to exactly the same places where they originally nested. So that's the equivalent of flying twice around the circumference of the globe. And they see more daylight than any other bird because they're spending all of their our winters down in, in the Antarctic where it's now sunlight almost 24 hours a day. So among all these Arctic terns that you know buzz around the planet to the tune of nearly 60,000 miles a year, any one of those critters that's attracted your attention for one reason or another? We do have a couple of birds that actually, some of the terns kind of nest on the route where we're actually going to move these boxes. So they will quite often attack you, particularly at the beginning of the season. They get very, very angry when you go past them. So what they'll do is they'll swoop down, they'll peck you on the head. They'll also poo on your head as well. Um, so those particular, and they're the birds that come back every year. So it oh, but number 23 is back. Fantastic. We, we know what's going to happen when we go down and look at the boxes. Number 23 is apparently full of it, huh? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Glenn Potter is the countryside manager for the Northumberland Coast and Foreign Islands at the National Trust, which is a British conservation organization. Gwen, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Oh, thank you. It was really good to talk to you. Thank you. 
Your comments on our program are always welcome. Call our listener line anytime at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Our email address is comments at LOE.org. That's comments at LOE.org. And visit our webpage at LOE.org. That's LOE.org. Coming up, a best-selling novelist and his passion for birds. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from a friend of Sailors for the Sea, working with boaters to restore ocean health. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. That strange, rather industrial racket is not, as you might imagine, a construction site, but a lyre bird, native to Australia, which spent time near a construction zone and learned to mimic the sounds it heard there. The lyre bird is just one of nearly 10,000 species of birds living today and being celebrated in this year of the bird. As we mentioned earlier, National Geographic, along with Audubon and several other bird conservation organizations, have declared 2018 the Year of the Bird in celebration of the centennial of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Nat Geo will feature stories about birds for the rest of the year. The January cover story, Why Birds Matter, was written by National Geographic writer and novelist Jonathan Franzen, who joins me now from Santa Cruz, California. Welcome to Living on Earth. Uh, It's great to be here. Thanks. So tell me a bit about the Migratory Bird Treaty Act that's being celebrated this year. Why was it necessary back in 1918, and, and what does it do today? You know, when Europeans first came to North America, they were overwhelmed by the sheer quantity, not to mention the diversity of birds in North America. The sky going black with passenger pigeons, just unbelievable richness of birds. Around the end of the 19th century, suddenly people noticed, uh uh-oh, the birds are gone. And in fact, passenger pigeon, Carolina parakeet, extinct. Egrets were on the verge of extinction because of the fashion in collecting them for their feathers. And so suddenly, in the space of about 20 years, right around the same time that Teddy Roosevelt and others were advocating for a national park system, we had the invention of bird conservation. We saw the creation of the Audubon Society, and then it also was the kind of capstone for all of that was the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. So what exactly is this Migratory Bird Treaty Act, and who's it a treaty with? It's a treaty with Canada and Mexico. And it recognized that a lot of the birds we consider our own are actually shared with other countries. Now, of course, in the U.S., it's not just Canada and Mexico. It's all of South America, where many of our migrants go. But these are our near neighbors. And it was understood we as a nation have an obligation not to kill Canada's birds and vice versa. And the same thing for Mexico. So basically, there was a treaty signed. We won't kill each other's birds. And then there had to be a law to enforce that treaty which basically made it illegal to kill any migratory bird except one of the huntable species, which is to say all songbirds. You couldn't kill a songbird in the U.S. without breaking the law. Indeed. By the way, Jonathan, I have to ask, are you 
a birder. Would you consider yourself a birder? Ha <laughs> ha Yeah, I'm a bit of a birder. You know, it was migration that got me into birds. I'd been a very urban creature. I was a New York person, lived in Manhattan, and I had a then new girlfriend whose sister and brother-in-law were birders, and they came down to see us in Manhattan and said, let's go birding in Central Park. And I thought I knew, I, I walked in Central Park every day. I'd been walking in Central Park for years. I knew it like the back of my hand. They stuck binoculars in my hand. We walked out there and started pointing things out. Like, here's a warbler in a tree. I'm hearing a warbler. That's a northern parallel. Take a look at that. And I look up and here's this, you know, little three and a half inch, four inch long bird with this bright egg yolk colored throat and this slaty back and cool eye patterns. And it's like, what is that? And for the next four hours, it was a series of, are you kidding me? We saw maybe 60, 70 species of birds in one afternoon. It was a brilliant May weekend and all the birds were coming through. And I had the sense I hadn't had since high school when I realized what people were talking about when they talked about sex, like, oh, now I get it. Um, (laughs) There was this huge hidden dimension to the world that was suddenly visible to me. And all I had to do to find out more about it was to go out by myself with binoculars. So the title of your article in National Geographic is Why Birds Matter. So why do birds matter? Well, you can make a case that birds matter because they are valuable indicators of the health of natural systems, local ecosystems, larger ecosystems. If you go to an area that once was full of birds and you can't find any birds, it probably means there's something very wrong with the ecosystem. That's a useful argument, although, frankly, you don't need birds to tell you when a forest has been cut down. You can also make an argument that birds matter because they do serve various economic functions. They they do rodent and insect control. They're great pollinators. They're great seed distributors. But the basic fact is that birds are a net drag on our economy. They eat more than they give. Um, (laughs) And seriously, I mean, I I actually, I planted some blueberries behind our house knowing the birds would get them. But I thought, maybe I'll get a cup or two of blueberries. Nope. Every last blueberry, gone. Um, They're very good at that. And I was fine because I actually like the mockingbird that had them. But no, so they will not pull their weight. And so if your only metric is economic, you can't really make a good case for birds. Why do birds matter to you? So birds are not just a vital part of nature, but they're a singular instance of nature because they have been world-dominating creatures for 65 million years. They're this brilliant adaptation of the original dinosaurs. They are feathered, flying dinosaurs that managed to escape the big extinction event 65 million years ago and populate the entire world. And even now, they are more widespread than any other kind of creature, including human beings. They're out in the middle of the most remote ocean. They're in the driest desert. They're in the middle of Antarctica in winter. Uh, Not the middle, but the edge of Antarctica in winter. If you care about the natural world that we came out of, you ought to respect these creatures that were the great thing that happened before human beings came along. Well, we're celebrating the centennial of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, so let's talk about some migratory birds Jonathan, tell me about the cerulean warbler. So in in North America, 
about half the birds that we have don't spend the whole year within our national boundaries. And especially many of the more colorful ones, including the cerulean warbler, which is this tiny little bird, the male of which is bright blue, incredible little warbler. It typically will make a migratory journey of 5,000 miles or more in each direction. They like to winter in the cloud forest in northern South America. You can see them in Peru and Ecuador. And then come spring, they make their way. And again, we're talking about a bird that weighs, you know, as much as a pencil or less, makes its way all the way back typically to West Virginia or New Jersey. And in the case of a particular cerulean warbler that I heard about from a brother-in-law of mine, they're very rare in Massachusetts. There are only a couple of breeding pairs in all of Massachusetts. And so when you every spring go out to a location and you see a male cerulean warbler in the same tree, you've got a pretty good bet that that one bird has flown all the way to Peru and all the way back and found the same tree. And it may very well even like the same branch. And to me, when you think of the tininess of that bird, the tininess of its brain, the fact that it managed to navigate through all of these hazards 6,000 miles south and then another 6,000 miles north and find the same tree again. It's just absolutely incredible to me. It's such a cool song that it has. Yeah, that's it. And you're walking down a road, you hear that, you say, wow, it's a cerulean warbler. They're actually rather <laughs> hard to see because they're, they, they like the canopy or the mid-canopy of trees that are leafing out. So you can hear it and it'll drive you crazy for 20 minutes until you find it. Talk to me about the dippers which have, should we say, a a rather interesting way of getting around? Yeah, the old name for the dipper is the water oozel, and it's a bird you find in the American West. It has a truly unique feeding style. It'll fly from rock to rock, but in order to feed, it feeds on these aquatic insects, and it essentially jumps in the water and walks on the bottom of this fast-flowing stream, picking up these little insects from the bottom of the stream. You know, and then it has to pop out to catch its breath, and then it will go back under. So it's the strangest thing because it's like a small robin. It's this little thrush that you expect to be seeing, you know, in a, in a front lawn or in a tree or something. No, it's actually disappearing for a minute at a time because it's walking on the bottom of a stream. It's incredible. Let's talk about the European Swifts. Now, they can stay aloft for nearly a year before coming back to land. How do they do that? Um, eating is easy because Swifts basically catch insects in the air. Sleep, big problem. And the the way Swifts, we think, have solved it, it's difficult to actually monitor the brain activity of a Swift that's flying 2,000 meters up continuously. But the best guess, based on looking at other birds, is that it has the capacity to sleep one half of its brain at a time, leaving the other kind of, it's like a plane with two pilots. One of them sleeps while the other one looks straight ahead and keeps the plane aloft. Again, it's speculative, but there's really no other way to explain it because everything needs to sleep. And how else could you stay aloft if you don't have that capacity? Jonathan, what's your favorite bird? I love the California towhee. And I love it because it's so easy to overlook. Most people see this small to medium-sized songbird hopping around on the ground, dull brown, It's everything that might turn a person off bird watching. And 
The towhee is a great bird because it's a bird you can see every day. It becomes a constant companion. When I was first getting into birds, the towhee was the bird I was seeing every day. It's probably beyond reason, but I formed this close, close bond with it. I thought, why, this is a magnificent small creature that no one gives a second look to. And the more I look at it, the more beautiful I find it. Let's take a listen. One of the many, many lovable qualities of towhees is they are a relatively rare bird that mates for life. And once they have paired off, the male and the female will sing duets to kind of announce to the world, we're paired up, no other comers need apply. What are the threats to birds these days? The biggest threat to birds and to wildlife in general is loss and fragmentation of habitat. And interestingly, kind of shockingly, the number one threat after habitat loss is outdoor cats. The reliable scientific estimates of the toll on North American birds, just U.S. birds in a single year is phenomenal. It's on the order of one to three billion birds every year being taken by feral cats and and free-running cats. After that, probably the next biggest worry is collisions. There's really nothing we can do about a lot of that. We've all had the experience of a robin or a flicker or something crashing into the kitchen window. There are things we can do to mitigate that. The toll is particularly high in cities that have skyscrapers whose lights attract birds. There are some very good initiatives going on to get cities to black out their high buildings during critical migration times. And the third major threat appears to be agriculture in general, but particularly the pesticides. And it is worrisome that the new Environmental Protection Agency director, Scott Pruitt, does not seem interested in rolling back some of these pesticides that had been studied and were about to be banned. But there's been a tremendous decline in birds that depend on open land, grassland birds, and things like whippoorwills that feed on insects above open fields, with the pesticides being the likely culprit for those declines. Wow, that sounds rather daunting. So what can the average person listening now do to help birds? In a way, it doesn't matter what you do as long as you do something. If all you do is pick up trash or help build predator-proof fences down at the local Audubon reserve or help remove invasive plants from a wetland or something, Obviously, contributing to some of the organizations that have the, have the resources to do larger-scale conservation work at the level of landscape or even country, that's a great thing. And in a very practical way, you can write to your congressman right now and say, don't mess with the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, which is where we started this hour, talking about that, that amazing act, which is under threat in the current Congress, and it's also under threat by the Department of Interior, which wants to basically defang that law and make it okay to kill birds without having to pay any consequences. So the worst thing is to just ignore it, because once you pay attention, you might fall in love, and once you fall in love, then you're going to have to do something. Jonathan Franzen wrote the January cover story for National Geographic, Why Birds Matter, Jonathan, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot, Steve. In this year of the bird, you might feel like lending them a hand yourself. 
And Michael Stein has a suggestion in today's bird note. Looking for a project for a winter's day? Consider giving screech owls a helping hand. Eastern and western screech owls span the wooded areas of the continent, nesting in naturally occurring tree cavities left vacant by large woodpeckers. Such natural housing opportunities are often in short supply, though. And that's where you come in, because screech owls will happily take to nest boxes. In fact, they'll nest in wood duck boxes, flicker boxes, and even the occasional mailbox. But you can build an ideal home for them with a few pieces of wood, a saw, and an hour or two of your spare time. The owls like an area with ample trees, but they'll also nest right next to your house. You'll need to attach the box to a tree or post at least 10 feet above ground, which helps the owls sneak in and out. When leaving the box, an owl drops low to the ground and stays low in flight for some distance to elude potential predators, like larger owls or raccoons. Screech owls start courting as early as February, so now is the ideal time to get started. I'm Michael Stein. And dive on over to our website, LOE.org, for pictures. Next time on Living on Earth, rising seas threaten to leak into a covered nuclear waste pit in the remote Marshall Islands. Unfortunately, this is a nation where its nuclear legacy is colliding directly with the climate change future, and that dome is the intersection of all of that. The Dilemmas of Nuclear Pollution. That's next time on Living on Earth. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Savannah Christensen, Jenny Doring, Noble Ingram, Jamie Kaiser, Don Lyman, Helen Palmer, Adlai Chen, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from John Gesso and Jake Rigo. Allison Lerostein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy, from Carl and Judy Fehrenbach of Boston, Massachusetts, and from Solar City, America's solar power provider. Solar City is dedicated to revolutionizing the way energy is delivered by giving customers a renewable alternative to fossil fuels. Information at 888-997-1703. That's 888-997-1703. PRI Public Radio International.